idea I ran across. It's quite a, a good restaurant gimmick, and you can't very well see this picture, but this is a menu of a French restaurant. So I'm, I'm proposing this idea, if any of you are interested in uh, entrepreneurial restaurant idea. This is a dating fancy French restaurant. Have you ever been to a fancy restaurant before? I haven't gone to too many, but <laughs> Applebee's, right? That's pretty fancy, right? This is a French restaurant. This is one of those type of restaurants where you go in and you look at the menu and you're very confused. You don't know exactly what you're ordering. But here's the idea that, that's set forth. It's in, instead of just having one menu, you have two menus. So when I bring my lovely wife, Emily, to the restaurant, she's handed a menu and I'm handed a menu. And they look exactly the same until you open them up. When you open them up, I have the real price and she has an inflated price. You get where I'm going with this? She's going to read that the steak is $200. I'm going to read that the steak is 15 So that when she reads it, she's going to think, holy cow, Ben is really treating me. So I'm probably blowing this whole idea by telling her right now. <laughs> but this is a gimmick, right? So there's a story of a French restaurant that did this. And they had a massive amount of people that started coming in. A massive amount of people started coming in that were dating. You can see where this would really work with a couple that are just starting to date. Because holy cow, he is being so generous. He must be very wealthy. But in reality, he's paying a different price. Would you consider that to be a little bit dishonest? So none of you are in with it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it, it is a little bit dishonest. It's a little hypocritical, isn't it? And we, we use that word sometimes when we see something as it is not. It's, it's pretending to be something. And in fact, the, the word stems from the idea of an actor. A hypocrite is an actor. Somebody who's portraying something to be as it is not. And the meaning on the screen here says, A person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. That's the first definition. The second one is a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. So that was a... That's, that's what hypocrisy is. And it's interesting that the first one goes right to religion. Have you ever heard that I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites? Have you ever heard that? And, and you're talking to somebody and they know you go to church. You're like, thanks. <laughs> what are you calling me right now? A hypocrite, right? Well, I want to propose that the church is not full of hypocrites. Go to the next slide. This church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. <laughs> Look around. There's plenty of room for more. And, and that's not to demean you guys. It's not. But when we read scripture, and I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes when I read the gospels, I read it and I go, oh, that's great. I'm actually doing this. And then I go two verses farther and I go, oh, I'm messing up. Have you ever felt like you're messing up? Yeah. And I say I'm a Christian, but then when I look at scripture, I'm not always abiding by it completely. And I think that's discouraging for us sometimes when we're in church service. We're discouraged because we feel like, man, every time I go to church, I hear about how I'm not doing enough, how I'm not this or that. And I walk out kind of feeling like I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. Now, sometimes people are genuinely hurt in churches. And that's where that saying comes from. You know, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. And I love this. This is actually a sign that is on a church. Can you imagine outside the door it says, <laughs> this church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. It's funny, but it's a little bit accurate. 
Because sometimes we can walk around and we can think we have all of our act together. And we get so high and mighty, we forget that we're only saved by grace. Amen? We forget that it isn't by our works that we're saved. And that's an interesting to bring up because we're going to be going through James here. And James talks a lot about works. But the works he talks about are not what earns us salvation. The works he talks about are our natural response to the salvation that God has given us. So good works flow out of the salvation and the grace that God has given us. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who said that? I heard a, I heard a little boy's voice. That was great. Okay. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's easy for us to forget that we were once hypocrites. And in all likelihood, we're going to mess up again, right? So we're not perfect. We're saved. We're redeemed. God has given us that. And when he sees us, he doesn't see hypocrites. What he sees is his children following him. James chapter 1, last week we, we talked about the mirror. Haha, <laughs> so we meet again. This is a, a small child looking in the mirror. Have you ever had... Annabelle has been looking in the mirror. Uh, she's a girl, so she does it right off. Uh, but she's, she's very little. That, that's not a slam. <laughs> I, I can't dig my way out of that one. <laughs> but... She, <laughs> The boys are more likely to stand in front of the mirror and cry. Try to figure that one out. They cry. They're looking at it, trying to figure out how to turn the waterworks on so they can control us, I believe. But anyways, the, the baby looks into the mirror, and, and at first they're kind of surprised by their appearance. They don't know who it is. They think there's another baby there. Then they start to kind of get it. And this child right there is in the middle of that. He's still not figured it out. <laughs> he's, he's meeting his twin again. It's very crazy. It's another parallel dimension behind that mirror. But sometimes, James was talking about this in chapter 1, the verses we went over last week, so quick review. He says that if your faith isn't active, if your faith isn't helping you be helpful, if it's just holy, then, it, then it's like looking in a mirror and forgetting who you are. It's like looking in the mirror and forgetting who you are. And remember, I put the unicorn mask on, and, and uh, some of you were happy about that because you didn't have to look at my face. And, uh, it, it, and then I forgot what I was wearing. Continue preaching. You know? it, so sometimes we look in the mirror, we forget who we're called to be. We forget we're called to look like Jesus. We forget we're supposed to be doing this. And, and so James is gently reminding us, he says, don't, don't forget who you are. Remember that your faith is not just to make you holy. If it's making you holy, it will make you helpful. Everyone say holy and helpful. And that's the order it goes in. That's the order it goes in. God makes us holy through his sacrifice. It's not through what we've done. God makes us holy because of his son purchasing us. He died on the cross for us. He bled for us. He purchased the right for our souls. When we accept him, even that in itself is an act of grace because it says the Holy Spirit guides us to him. When we accept him as our savior, we become holy. Set apart. Something different. A child or daughter, a son of God. That's what we become. When we, we do that, we don't, we don't just stay there. We don't, aren't just raptured up into heaven. 
What happens is we, 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 we stay here and we work through the things that we have to work through. We deal with the things that we have to deal with personally, but we're also called to be helpful because out of the holy flows helpfulness. And if our faith isn't helpful, then it probably isn't holy and it may not be real. If, if a tree is living, then it's probably starting to bud about now. It's going to have leaves, right? If you have a tree on your property that does not grow any leaves this summer, what will you think of it? It's dead, right? It's, it's dead. It's good for firewood. Now, our faith is like a tree, and our faith bears fruit, or it has leaves, and, and when it bears fruit, those are the helpful things. The, the things, not just for us that are helpful, but that are helpful for others. Because our faith is called to be helpful for others. So James really nails that home. He says, do what you believe. Don't just say you believe it. I need to see some action to it. Because without action, then I really have to question whether or not the faith is real. Because God has changed you. And because God has changed you, it will change how you act and how you move and how you work within the world. James chapter 2 um, we're jumping into it. Last week we had compassion, compassion child. There's still a few of them out there. I think seven to eight to nine uh, kids you guys picked up. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you because when you, when you sponsor a child for $38 a month, you change their life, not just for now, but for all of eternity. And there are things that we can practically do in our neighborhood around us. It doesn't have to just be sending something off to somewhere else. That will make an impact that lasts for eternity. And that's what James is talking about. That our faith needs to be helpful. It needs to change others around us. And so he calls us to do very practical things. And he says that we're to take care of the orphans. We're to take care of the needy. We're to clothe the poor. We're to feed the homeless. We're to do all of these things. So James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And this is where everything in this message is going to come from. This is the proposition, the question that is put out there by James, the brother of Jesus. He's saying, how can you claim... To have faith if you favor someone else over someone else. Now this is a real issue in his time. In fact, it was an issue in the Jewish churches that he's speaking to. Because they had this philosophy. They had this idea that the wealthy were the ones that were blessed of God. And if you were poor, then you deserved it because of your sin. And so because of that, and then also just because this is how the world operates, it's not how God operates, but it's how the world operates. When we see somebody with nice things, a flashy car, their act together, gold jewelry, nice watches, this type of thing, they're put together well, they're wearing the $2,000 suit. We think they must be doing pretty well, right? Either that or they're in a massive amount of credit card debt. But either way, they're portraying an image that they are affluent it looks like they're doing well. And James is going to attack this and he's going to say, that's not how the church is to operate. 
That's not how you people of faith are to view things. We're not to read the book by its cover, amen? We're to look deeper than what someone is wearing. We're to look deeper than where they've come from. We're to look deeper than what their skin color, what their heritage is. And the Jewish people had very, very much difficulty with this because they had slaves in their environment. They had others that, that as they were growing up, their whole life they were told as Jews, you are God's chosen people. And, and then on top of that, something negative was said. While they were God's chosen people, there was a belief that was put into place that was man-made that says you're better than everyone else, and everyone else is scum. And we all know some people that still harbor those feelings, or maybe they grew up through those feelings, and they have an aversion to different skin colors, right? They have an aversion to different types of people, maybe the single mom out there. Or somebody who's on welfare, they, they really, it irritates them. And so that's who James is talking to. He's saying very clearly that this is not how the church is to behave. Verse 2, it says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, <laughs> doesn't this show discrimination? Doesn't it show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? He's talking about a church meeting. Folks, I have been to churches that do this. No joke. They don't allow the children to sit in a certain area. To me, that's totally against the gospel and what Jesus did. What did Jesus say? Let the little children come to me, right? For theirs is the kingdom of, yeah, of God, of heaven. It's theirs. And unless you become like a little child, you will not enter in there. That's what Jesus said. His disciples, on the other hand, were like, put the little kids out of here. They're... Oh, they're irritating us. Some churches still behave that way. That's wrong. Other churches, they have a certain dress code that must, it's informal, it's, it's not really said, but I've been to the church before. Everyone's wearing a suit with a tie. I walk in with jeans, right? Jeans and old, <laughs> and old sneakers. And I, I felt very uncomfortable. You know, people kind of looked at me funny. I know that's partially my fault. I didn't know the culture of the church. This is how the world operates. We put the flashy thing out front, right? The, the best looking thing we put out there for everyone to see. And if anything is ugly, we try to hide it. That's why we have Photoshop and our models are fake, right? That's why we have all this stuff. And James is saying, don't be like that. Don't do that. That's not godly. Your judgments, they're guided by evil. You're, you're trying to look out for your own best behavior. You're trying to feel good about yourself and say, look who we have as a part of us. You're trying to put people in established places that are rich so that you can get bigger offerings. You're cowering. You're not ministering to the poor the way you're supposed to. And I don't think our church is there. I'm not saying that's us. But it's good that James is reminding us that that's what we're not supposed to be, right? 
I look out, I don't see anyone in a, a, you know, a huge suit right now. And I'm obviously not wearing a suit. I'm wearing painting clothes right now. <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing that because I, I looked at this text this morning. And I, I was all dressed. I was ready to head out the door. And I was looking at the text and saying, no, it doesn't make sense to, to really look nice this morning. When I look at the text, because that's what the text is saying. It's saying appearances are not what matters. God sees the motive of our heart. Amen? God sees beyond, you know, the few extra pounds we have, the hair that isn't quite in style, the car that doesn't look beautiful, the clothes that don't fit perfectly. God sees beyond that. He's not superficial. Are we glad about that? (laughs) Some of you are questioning it. I don't know. I'm pretty glad that God isn't superficial and that his judgments are not guided by evil. So the Jewish culture of the time said that if you're rich, if you're wealthy, then you've been blessed by God. And I want to say that we have, in the United States, we have a culture that has been growing that says the exact same thing. We can turn on the TV, we can hear certain preachers, we can read the books that says we're always to be blessed. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us. I believe that God has blessed us with so much. And God has given me so much, and I have so many blessings. But then I read scripture, and I see the gospel, and I read the account of Paul who was stoned with with rocks. Not with drugs. All right? Just putting that out there. He's stoned. He's beaten. He's flogged within inches of his death. He's in prison more than once. Finally, he's executed by the government. And then I look at some of the teaching that's being taught us. Some of the stuff that's out there right now. And it says, you're always to be blessed. And I see what Paul went through. And how he lost his friends in the end because they thought that God had abandoned him. And then I read stories about James. You know, we're going through the book of James. How he was martyred, dropped off the the roof of the church, dropped off the synagogue, and then stoned, and then finally hit upside the head with a giant club. And I look at that, and I don't see the same blessing that we're talking about. I see a different kind of blessing. In the midst of those situations, they were doing the work of God. Amen? While Paul couldn't go out and preach, he was writing the letters of Romans and Corinthians and these other books that we have. That's where our faith is grounded. It isn't based upon the circumstance of our blessing, but it's based upon the fact that we know we're saved by grace and we have an eternal blessing that we're awaiting. And then I know the account of Jesus who was crucified, God's own son, dies on the cross. He tells us to take our cross up daily, tells his disciples that most of you are going to die in the same way I did. And it doesn't look like earthly blessings that we hear about. It doesn't look like something everyone would jump and sign up to. But it's living within that reality that this is temporary. That the blessings that we have now, while they're from God, they're they're to be used for His kingdom and for His glory. And they're temporary because greater things await us. Amen? One day, we're going to have a whole lot more than we have right now. 
We're going to have eternal life. We're going to have a life without tears, without sorrow. I'm looking forward to that. And nothing, nothing will make me sell out for temporary pleasure now at the cost of my soul later. That doesn't mean God doesn't bless us, but it means we have an idea in our mind of what we're working towards. Paul said, pursue, you know, push on to the finish line. We have this understanding we're in this marathon, and that's where we're headed. This is a picture. Here's Willie. Um, everyone say, hi, Willie. <laughs> I love Willie's story. Willie, uh, Willie got a job in Clarksville, Tennessee. And uh, Willie had, had been offered the job. He moved to the area, Clarksville, and he's, he's walking around. And, and, and a few weeks before he was supposed to start, he was praying and he felt God told him to do something. He felt God was telling him to walk for a week around the city and live as if he was homeless. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds absolutely crazy. So he does it. He, he, uh, he prepares for it. He gets rid of his phone. He doesn't have any cash on him. He's wearing what he has and he's walking around. Luckily, it was summer. <laughs> he's walking around and he's relying on the generosity of soup kitchens and uh, charity work and people that are out handing meals out. So there's other homeless people in the community. He gets to know the culture of the homeless people. He gets to see their hardships. He says in one of his accounts, he says that he understands why the homeless walk so slowly now because when you're sleeping on the ground or on cement, it doesn't make for good joints in the morning. So he dove into this. Now, Willie is a reverend. <laughs> He was hired by a church. So he's preaching in the church, and he sits outside of the church dressed like this. Now the good news is, over 20 people in his congregation of roughly 200 to 300 came up and talked with him as he was sitting outside. They didn't realize who he was because he had grown a little bit of a beard, and I'm sure he didn't smell too pleasant, and he was wearing grubby clothes. They came up and talked to him. So that's, that's amazing. I mean, he had to be pretty proud of that because this church that he just came to was doing that. As he, as he came in, he, he came down the aisle and, and stood up to preach and everyone kind of gasped because some of them realized they had talked to him outside. Uh, he, he shaved and he put on a suit and looked completely different by the end of his message. And his message was on uh, Matthew chapter 25, where it talks about how God has called us to, to serve people. And there's going to be a separating at, at Judgment Day between those who have obeyed God and who have done it for the right motives and those who have not, the sheep and the goats. And he says there's going to be a day, there's a reckoning where God is going to say, have you gone to the prison? Have you fed the hungry? Have you clothed the naked? Have you given rooms to the needy? He's going to ask those things. I, ad I admire Willie. I, I think if I did that in Cicero, it would be a little bit more difficult because there, there aren't quite as many homeless people that we can see on the streets. But I want you to know there are homeless people here. They may be sleeping on people's couches. 
They may not know where their next meal is going to come from. There are people with real needs around us. And I know that sometimes even the people in our church have real needs like that. God has not called us to look so much to the heavenly that we forget that there are people that are in need. Our faith is to be helpful and holy, right? Holy and helpful. It's to be both of those things. Verse 5, it says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. I love this address because right in that address, he nails it again. And we don't see it. The discrimination. We talked about how the the Jewish people would be discriminatory towards a lot of different cultures and a lot of different things. One of the things, one of the people that were most heavily discriminated against would be the female gender. In that time, they were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to to divorce their husbands. Their husbands could just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Three times, you're divorced. They wouldn't have to, there'd be no dividing the household. The husband would keep everything. There were were these things, inequalities that were going on all the time. She would be destitute. She may have to turn to prostitution at that point. If your husband die, you, dies, you may not have a way to make money. You couldn't stay in your house if you didn't have a firstborn son or a, a son, someone else to take over it. And we read through some of the Old Testament stuff where there's established this government within the Jewish people where if, if somebody dies and they're married and this woman is, is left without a husband, her husband dies, she has to marry her brother-in-law. Which some of you are thinking, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. No way. I know my brother-in-law. That ain't happening. But but realize that was a contingency that was in place because these women could starve to death. So James, James goes about right there and he says, Dear brothers and sisters. And he clearly is saying that this is over. There's no discrimination. Women and men are created by God. Amen? There is no hierarchy in this. God has made us different, but there is no hierarchy. So he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? And here's what it boils down to. Material wealth is of little worth compared to your soul's identity. Material wealth is of little worth compared to your soul's identity. There are people that have massive bank accounts, all the cars they could want. They've retired at a young age. They have everything that they want. Their hearts desire, yachts, trips, everything that money can buy. But they are some of the poorest people in the world. You know what I'm talking about. We, a lot of the time, see things with our physical eyes. What we don't realize is there's something that's far more real out there, the spiritual. I want you to know some of you people in this room are the richest people in the world. (laughs) 
You're the richest people in the world because you're sons and daughters of God Almighty. Because you have been given eternal life. Because you have an inheritance from the creator of all of the universes. You are his children. And too often we get caught up with what we don't have. And we forget who we are and who we are in God. Amen? Some of the people that we see on TV and we idolize, the athletes, the, the professional actresses and, and actors and celebrities, and, and we have this stuff that's just propagated in front of our face, and they're just people. And they ha may have more assets than us financially, but they can be in such dire poverty spiritually. That's not to say there aren't Christians out there with a ma massive amounts of wealth. But there are a lot of people out there. And it says right here that God has chosen the poor. There's another scripture where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And what Jesus is trying to convey with that weird image of shoving a giant camel through a little needle. None of you try that at home, please. <laughs> Be messy. Uh, it's just not going to work. It, it, Jesus isn't saying it's impossible. What he's saying is it's very difficult because the wealthy have this in their mind that this, this world is all that there is. And they, they view themselves as self-sufficient. And that's not what God has called us to. He says that he uses the poor. He uses those who are not large and earthly wisdom in order to share his message of faith. Verse 8 says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. So that law is the one of love your neighbors as yourself. Verse 10 says, For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the person who keeps all the laws except for one is guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Have you ever broken any of God's laws? How many of you are really good at it? <laughs> yeah. I'm there. Yeah. It, this, is, this is where we get back to the hypocrite thing. Because sometimes we look at someone else, and I have done it this week, I guarantee you. We look at someone else's shortfallings. They're missing the mark. Is what, That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. So you can imagine shooting at something and you don't hit the target. Missing the mark. That's what sin is. So if we're missing the mark, God's mark that he's placed on there, he says this is the target. If we're missing it in any of our shots, any of our areas in our life, then we have broken the law. But God's grace, his perfect law, is that Jesus came to die in our place. Amen? And through that, we receive salvation and we're not bound by that law. What we need to remember is when we look at others that are missing the mark consistently, and some of them are missing the mark on you, they're not just sinning against themselves, they're sinning against you. That God still loves them, that he paid for them through his son, Jesus Christ. And he wants you to love them. As difficult as that is. That we were once there. That we once were the ones in sin. Verse 12. 
Actually, verse 11 says, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. I love how he goes to the extreme there, and it's not the other way around. He says, well, if you murder someone but you do not commit adultery, you still have broken the law. So if we gossip, if we're gluttonous, if, if we're prideful, if we're arrogant, if we commit adultery, if we commit murder, if we lie, if we do any of these things, we still have broken the law. Verse 12 says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So as bearers of Christ's name, as people that have been given an immense amount of mercy and grace, we are called to be merciful to others. That is part of who we are. That is wrapped into our spiritual DNA. And if you find somebody who says that they are following God, but they are not merciful, they are not forgiving, they are not following the scripture, then the question is, are they really children of God? Are they really where they're supposed to be, according to this verse or not? God will be merciful when he judges you if you have shown mercy. But there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy. That's why forgiveness is so important. That's why I harp and harp and harp on it. Because it's in scripture so many times that we cannot hold grudges. We cannot hold bitterness. We must be merciful as God has been merciful to us. We have to pass on God's mercy. The law that sets you free is God's grace through the purchase of your soul. Through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what justifies us. And justifies and justification is, is a word of purchase. He paid for us. He bought us. Amen? And whether or not you know it, we are a slave to something. Paul calls himself a slave to God. It's such a and James does it too. It's such a good analogy because, because we're purchased. And it's a slavery of freedom from sin. Otherwise, we're slaves to sin. We're bound by it. So God has called us to work in his mercy. He's called us to be merciful. He's called us to be holy and helpful. The two wings on the plane. If one wing falls off, we're probably not doing it right. We have to have both of those things. We have to be holy and we have to be helpful. Faith justifies and leads to good works. It always justifies and leads to good works. And, and sometimes we think that there are, there's an error in Scripture that Paul says that it's not works that save us. James isn't saying works save us. He says there's proof in the pudding. Everyone say there's proof in the pudding. How many of you really want pudding now? <laughs> there's proof in the pudding. It's there. Our faith changes who we are and changes how we act. It changes what we do. So we're not hypocritical. Yeah, we may have moments where we fall apart and we don't do it the way we're supposed to. But there isn't two faces to us. There is one reality. There is one truth. We are saved by God. We are given his mercy to give to others. We are holy and we are helpful. We have an image we're going to pop up here. This is a little place called Thumb Islands. Have you ever heard of it before? No. Okay, this is a resort. Looks pretty beautiful, doesn't it? A resort in Long Beach, California. 
There are five to six islands that were man-made and created. And when you look out over at night, this is what you see. You see these colored walls and these skyscrapers. And even the, during the day, it's quite marvelous. And there's a variety of human man-made waterfalls with large sounds of cascading water. And it is quite breathtaking. In fact, it's one of the favorite locations in the area for photographers to take pictures. The Thumb Islands. The Thumb Islands are not exactly what you think. While it looks like it's some kind of Las Vegas casino resort, some beautiful place you can take your children. Show the next slide. This is what's in the center. <laughs> oil. Oil drilling. The outside is a facade. It is large, tall metal buildings, fake waterfalls that are meant to to override the sound of drills going into the ground so that when you're on the beach there in Long Beach, you don't hear those so that you don't see all the mechanical work and the refinery. And I think it's a pretty brilliant solution to the problem. But if you tried to book that resort, you'd be in big trouble. <laughs> there are semis driving around and all these five or six islands. What's really happening is oil is being drilled for it looks brilliant on the outside, but on the inside, you don't want a vacation there. It's kind of a good trick, isn't it? <laughs> the, city, the city itself said, well, we'll let, you, we'll let you do this. It was a conglomerate that came in. A lot of different oil companies came in. They said, we'll let you do the drilling, but here's what you have to do. You have to mask it. You have to disguise it. You have to make it look better than it is because we don't want to ruin our, our beach lines. So this is a solution they came up with. It's, it's called greenwashing. This is probably one of the, the better ways that it's done. I don't, I don't think it's terribly inefficient or anything else. It's, it's quite brilliant in solving a solution. But sometimes I think as Christians, we can start greenwashing ourselves. We allow the things that are inside of us that maybe need to change and maybe are not very pretty to stay there. And what we do is we put the mask on. We put the facade on. We look holy. We have the holy down, right? But underneath there's something going on that isn't accurate. That isn't what God wants. God has called us to be transparent before others. He's called us to do what we believe. He's called us to be holy and helpful. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for each individual in here right now. Uh, Lord, I pray that those moments where we're tempted to judge others because of their circumstances, because of their finances maybe even because of their past sins that we would remember that we are saved by God's mercy alone. That his grace has called us and bound us to salvation. We have an eternity to look forward to in heaven with him. But that we are saved by grace. And God himself, Jesus Christ, died for the people that are around us. That he died for that person that irritates us in the workplace. That he died for that person that wronged us so many years ago. God, I pray that even if the people are not deserving of our mercy, that we would be willing to give it as you gave it to us before we deserved it. 
you died for us. While we were yet sinners, you paid the price for our salvation. God, I thank you that you call us to a life of liberty, of forgiveness, of freedom, where we're not bound by judging people, that we allow, that we allow others into our life that, that maybe don't look right, that don't act right, that we love people because you have created them. They are created in the image of God. And because of that, they hold value. Because of your son's sacrifice, they hold value because you died for them. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, that you have, you have set us apart, that you have made us holy and helpful. And we pray in Jesus' name that we would lead others into that same thing, that we would be salt and we would be light to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>